0: As Jack said, my name's Jared. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, Just to, you know, let you guys get to know me a little bit, I'll tell you something special that's today. Today is my uh, eighth month anniversary uh, for my wedding. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you. you. It took took you a little bit, but uh, I appreciate it. Uh, You know, it's just good to see uh, marriages last in this day and age. Uh, And uh, I know some of you out there have probably been married 50 years, and I understand. I've... uh, we're in this together. So, um, no, but really, today is uh, my eight-month wedding anniversary, and uh, a year ago today, this time of the year, we were busy planning our wedding. Uh, I think, actually, my wife had been planning our wedding uh, since she was probably found out what a wedding was. You know, you tell a girl that uh, a wedding is a time when everyone notices how beautiful you are and all the attention is on you, and, and it's like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. And I think, she was, you know, her whole life was pointing towards that day. So when we got engaged, wedding planning took off with a fury. Um, and we, we, we got the uh, venue, actually we got the venue done before we were engaged, if that uh, tells you how ready uh, she was for, to plan this wedding. But um, we got the venue planned out and, we were, and she was busy. Uh, putting together everything for the, her dream wedding. And her it was looking like something that belonged. In fact, her 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 desk and her room and table where she was uh, designing everything and, and building all the crafts. Or crafts, they're not crafts. Um, <laughs> it's crafting all of the uh, decorations and everything. It looked like a Pinterest board in and of itself. It looked like it belonged on Pinterest. And that was her dream for the wedding. Uh, I think I was in there somewhere. But... The big thing was this should be on Pinterest. this should be on everyone 's Pinterest, and uh, so she was really looking forward to it and I tell you this uh, because I want you to know if anyone ever suggests to you um, or tells you or lets you know that they are planning on getting married outdoors in, uh, in March in Orlando, uh, just tell them the story because um, and I know it doesn 't rain every weekend in March uh, in fact i, I don 't in, in, in this past march uh, it, I think it only rained one weekend um, and that just happened to be the weekend of our wedding, and uh, and our wedding was outdoors. And uh, so as the as the week as uh, we got closer, we started looking at the forecasts, and you get the fourteen day forecast that isn't accurate in any way, and I don't even know why they. It's like the uh, right after the BCS championship game, some sports magazine or something will put out the way too early top twenty five, and it's just what, what's the point of that? There's No way this is even close to being accurate. Uh, But they put out the 14-day thing, and if you have a wedding outdoors, you're looking at it, and you're building a lot of uh, feelings and emotions around that report. And then you get the 10-day report and the 5-day and the 3-day, and every report just kept saying more and more rain, you know, closer and closer. We kept thinking, oh, well, there's still a chance, you know, there's still... And then it was eventually like, no, there's not much of a chance. Um, And so as we... As we got ready for the wedding, we, we ended up, we get rented a tent uh, in order to kind of, if and when it d- did rain, it would protect the whole, uh, the, the reception. We saw the reception outside and, and all the things that she had designed and built with her friends and her uh, mother that, that those wouldn't get ruined in any way. Uh, we, we did all the safety procedures, not safety, I guess, but no one was actually in danger. Oh well, actually, maybe, but um, <laughs> we did everything we could to kind of try to ensure that this would end up being the wedding that we had dreamed of. And uh, sure enough, uh, day of, we wake up, beautiful morning outside, and just thinking, oh, it's not going to rain. It's not actually going to rain. Because there had been something, I think, in both of us, and we talked about it later on the honeymoon, that there was something in us that just thought, you know, as much as it looks like it's going to rain, and it might rain a little bit, Orlando, it it rains in the afternoon for 20 minutes, and then it's done, and, and we'll move on. There was just something in us that thought God wouldn't let it actually rain on a wedding day. Like God loves weddings; like He's a big fan of it. I keep hearing, so He's not actually going to let this anything actually happen to our wedding day. Like that's something important. He will change all of the weather in the greater area of Central Florida for our wedding, surely. And uh, I knew that that wasn't necessarily true, but I just—you can't help but going there sometimes when you start thinking. God's, God's not going to let this happen. And then sure enough, uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're getting married at 5. It not only rains, but it is to, like a torrential downpour. Uh, there are actual, if I remember right, there are actual reports of tornadoes in the area. Um, like 45 to 60 mile an hour winds. Uh, the, uh, the the venue we were at lost power, um, and which isn't a big deal unless you have a wedding where you need music and anything. Uh, it's amazing how much power, you know, it's like when the power goes out in your house and you're like, I did not realize how much I used that. Uh, and uh, the tent that we built, or we had rented, that was going to protect it from the weather and protect it from the elements, it the wind was so strong that it actually broke the tent. Um, so what you do then is you move the entire reception inside of a small little house and, uh, you know, you just go from there. And the wedding the dream wedding that uh, that we had was in effect ruined, and rain it had, it had, it had definitely rained on our wedding day and there 's a part in us that, as much as we know that God had not promised us a beautiful day for our wedding there 's a part in us that couldn 't help but go to that question of like where was where was God in the midst of that like I know uh, from you know, reading in the Bible anywhere, uh, or a lot of places, that God, he controls the weather. Like, there's places in the Bible where he stopped it from raining for like a month. And we're not even asking for that. We're just like a couple hours, you know. And there's places in the Bible where he flooded the earth, and we definitely didn't want that. And so it was just kind of, God, where were you in the middle of that? And as I was thinking about this passage, and I thinking about uh, today... I can't, can't help but think that that question is actually a very, uh, very central question, a very human question for us to ask. And often we don't ask it in as uh, lighthearted uh, of a way. Often it's not a, a wedding, which is uh, not a trivial thing, but it's a, uh, when, it, when compared to some things, it can seem a little bit more inconsequential. Well, oftentimes we're asking that question of, God, where are you in the midst of my marriage Where are you in the midst of my marriage that that we we keep going to counseling, we keep doing things, but it keeps struggling and it doesn't seem to be getting any better? Where are you in the midst of a strained relationship with my son or my daughter? Where are you in the midst of this doctor's office where I just received news that's changed everything? Where are you in the middle of unemployment? Where is God in the midst of brokenness and suffering that we experience in this world? Where is God in the midst of death or the loss of a loved one or a family member that went way too soon? Where is God in the midst of that? And really, that is a profoundly human question, and it's not a 21st century question. We're not the first people uh, to ever ask that. that, that really all throughout history. And I would say that all throughout Scripture, the Bible has been asking that question and seeking to address it and answer it. And that really all, the, the whole story of Scripture is meant to answer that question. It's where is God in the midst of a broken and suffering world? Uh, and I hope that today as we kind of dive into this passage, and, and not only this passage, but also look at the story so far as we've seen in Acts, and what Jesus has done, and, and, and how the apostles and the church is realizing and coming to grips with what he has done. I hope as we see that, uh, we are uh, encouraged and given hope in the midst of those questions, uh, today's the passage will come from Acts five seventeen through forty two, uh, and I will read it. You can follow along in your bulletin, or I think it'll be on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him—that is, the party of the Sadducees—and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel And forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Would you pray with me, Father God. Uh, I thank you for thank you for your word that you have given us uh, your word, and that we can trust it, uh, God. That it um, though it is beautiful literature and compelling uh, narratives and stories, but God, that it's not just those things. God, that it's historical events that actually happened, and because they happen, they actually matter. For our lives, and God, that your word, um, that we can trust it, and God, ultimately, that uh, we pray that um, you give us grace to hear your word, and that we don't think that we can manipulate it or, or handle it, uh, but that we let it interpret us and, and handle us, that we let it change us, and that you would speak to us through it, And here I pray, amen. Um, what I want to look at today in this passage uh, is kind of found in the center part of 27 through 32. And, and that's kind of a summary of what the apostles had been teaching. If you want to know what the apostles in the early church were kind of what their, what their status quo message was, it's found in that. And, and through, throughout this passage, uh, I want to not only look at this passage, but also look at what's the story that, that Acts has been telling so far. Because if we actually we started this series in Acts in September... Uh, which is about, if my math is right, like two to three months ago. Um, don't tell me if it's wrong. But about two to three months, we've been going through verse by verse through, uh, through Acts. And we're in Acts 5, um, which there's 28 chapters in Acts. And uh, we've been moving along at a pretty good, pretty good pace. Uh, I looked at my Bible at home, and in two and a half to three months, we've gone eight pages. Uh, so we've got a little bit more to go. But the beautiful thing about Scripture is that you can do that. And that you should do that. We should go through Scripture slowly because each, each—I mean, each line carries—is it's the very words of God, and that it's the thing that we can dive into and spend years studying. But also, one of the important things about Scripture is that it was not just written out in a vacuum. That, that uh, Luke, the author of this, he didn't just sit down just to write it just for the fun of it. Um, that Luke, when he wrote. These things, And when people wrote uh, scripture, especially in the New Testament, they wrote it for the church. They wrote it for, uh, to be read aloud in the church. And that Acts, really, if you were to just sit down and take an afternoon, you could probably read it, depending on how good of a reader you are, you could probably read the whole book of Acts in an hour or two or three, uh, if you're me. But it's not a long story. And the point of that is, it was meant to be read in one sitting in worship. Now, yes, you can, we can dive into it, and we should, but we also, it's, it's helpful to kind of try to look at what's, if you were to sit down and read this all in one story, you would, you would see the story on a different level, because you're just reading the whole thing. And it's important to look at what's the whole story of Acts been saying up, into this, up until this point, especially as we go into Advent next week, uh, and so today we're kind of ending our series on Acts. We'll pick it back up in January. I just wanted to spend a little bit of time being able to summarize what's the message of Acts been so far. And the, first, the top two main things that have happened in Acts, the two most important things would have to be in Acts 1 when Jesus ascends to heaven and then Acts 2 when the Spirit is poured out on the church. And everything from that in 3 through 5 is just an outworking and, a, and an evidence of what that means. And it's, it's, it's letting us see what those two events how they apply and how they how they impact the life of the church Uh, and one of the main ways that um, one of the main settings of acts one through five has been uh, the temple and I don't if you're like me I don't think much about uh, setting or I don't think much about things that are happening kind of in the background uh, and I definitely don't think much about the temple you know I don't I don't really have a good, really, uh, I didn't really have a good understanding of what it meant. Uh, To me, the temple is just the place where they kept going. You know, it's like the mall or something, uh, except for if people, you know, sang worship songs at the mall or whatever. But to me, the temple, it didn't, I didn't really understand much about it. Um, But as I began studying and and throughout, uh, you know, my own studies, like, uh, I've, I've really discovered that the temple is probably one of the most central and important ideas In all of the Bible. That the the temple was a central, especially at the time of the New Testament, to the Israelites in Jerusalem. That the temple was extremely important. And the reason why it was so important was that in the Old Testament, the temple represented the dwelling place of God. That the creator God who breathed creation, the whole universe, into existence by just speaking lived and dwelled in the temple. And they, they knew that he didn't, He wasn't confined to the temple. They knew he was bigger than it. But they knew in some way he specially dwelled there among his people. In, um, in 2 Kings 8 uh, is, is when the first temple is built and Solomon dedicates it. And after Solomon dedicates it and asks God to dwell there among his people, after Solomon dedicates it, God responds to him in 1 Kings 9, 3. He said, The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. The temple was the special dwelling place of God where he looked over his people and was present with them. In the midst of a world that was broken, in the midst of a world that, where there was suffering, which the uh, Israelites definitely understood. And they definitely understood that the world, the whole world, had been ravaged by the effects of sin. In the midst of all of that, there was the temple where God dwelled. And there a, there's this link between the temple and God's rule and reign. That, that when God was dwelling in the temple... There was this link between that and his throne room. Uh, in Psalms, Psalm 11, Psalm eleven four. it says, The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord is on his heavenly throne. In Isaiah 6, 1 is a famous passage. Where in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That when God is seated on his throne, in some ways he is, still, he is involved in and dwelling in the temple. that The temple was the place on earth where heaven and earth met, in a sense, where, where God dwelled and reigned and a sign to the people of Israel that God ruled over everything and God was on the throne. It's, it's a lot like you know a, a CEO in a business is, is most uh, authoritative or looks most authoritative when he's in his office working. You know, when he's, when he's, just the fact that he's in there it's kind of symbolic to people in the, in the business or whatever that, that he is running things. And if a CEO is never, ever, ever in his office, pretty soon people start to wonder if he's really that involved in what's going on. In the same way, the temple was a sign to God's people that he is in control of things and he is reigning. And so part of, part of what we want to ask is if that was what the temple was, why, what, what, what's the temple been so far in Acts? Because so far in Acts, actually, the temple has been a source of conflict for the church. That the church has constantly come into conflict with the people who, the authorities of the temple and the people who run the temple. And why? Why would the apostles come into conflict with the temple? I mean, it was, it was everything to them. And the answer is found in, in the idea of the exile and what happened in, in the history of Israel, when God's people were exiled from the land. Uh, they had sinned and they would not repent and God uh, asked them over and over and over to repent and eventually, as he had told them he would, uh, he exiled them and the Babylonians uh, ravaged Jerusalem and uh, ended up uh, destroying the temple. And so for an Israelite, during exile, the question of where is God in the midst of a broken and suffering world was very, very Present. It was very uh, pressing on them because now they didn't even have the temple to look on to know that God is in control. And so you have to start wondering, is he in control? And throughout, uh, throughout the time of the exile, the prophets uh, would, would tell the people, would try to, to encourage the people. God would send his prophets to the people to let them know one day God would bring them back to the land and God would restore the temple and he would dwell among them again. That was the hope of exiled Israel, that one day they would come back and God would dwell among them once more. And during the, during the history in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, w- well, first, when, the exile, when Israel in exile, eventually they were brought back to the land and they built a new temple, or they started to build a new temple. And so there's a sense in which you, we start to feel like this is, actually coming true that, that God is going to build the new temple again and dwell with his people and everything will be, uh, will, will be fixed that was wrong. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, also a sense in the Old Testament that this new temple is not the same. Uh, in Ezra 3, when they're laying the foundation of the new temple, it talks about how as they laid it, the, the, the young people rejoiced and were celebrating but the old, it says, that there's a verse that says, the older men who remembered the first temple wept. Because this one wasn't the same as that. That the Old Testament ends with kind of this idea of God, the people are back in the land, and there's a temple being built, but God isn't dwelling in it like he was before. And this was continued in the history in between the Old and New Testament, uh, when Jerusalem would be conquered by uh, enemies, at one point when Rome conquered Jerusalem, uh, the Roman general Pompey, uh, he actually walked up into the temple. And, and as an Israelite, you could imagine seeing this happen. Pompey walks up into the temple and he walks into the Holy of Holies. The place where the, the high priest wasn't even allowed to go except for once a year. And then they would tie a rope on him in case he were unclean and he were to die because of the presence of God. And a Roman general who had just destroyed Jerusalem or conquered Jerusalem walks into the Holy of Holies in order to let this God of Israel know that he has beat him. And he walks back out and he's totally fine. And to an Israelite in that, in that moment, there has to be a question of where, where is God now? That he, he's supposed to be there and he's not. Where is he? In the Old Testament, that question of where is God in the midst of suffering and pain would have been answered by simply pointing at the temple and saying he's there. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. But by the time of the New Testament, the temple was completely different. That God's presence wasn't, didn't seem involved. And it was not a place uh, that that offered hope to the people anymore. And And what we see in Luke's gospel is that Jesus constantly comes into conflict with the people in the temple. And Jesus is constantly saying that I will destroy this temple. That, that this temple will be destroyed. That this temple is, is passing away. The old things are passing away. And we, this, will, this will no longer uh, be needed. And that Jesus starts actually offering a lot of the things that the temple used to offer. That the temple in the Old Testament was the place that offered repentance the place that offered forgiveness of sins, that if you sinned and you wanted to know how can I be reconciled to God, you could go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And oftentimes that sacrifice, you were allowed to eat it. And you would eat that sacrifice in the temple, in the presence of God. And you would share a meal with him to let you know that you have been reconciled with him. And Jesus starts walking around uh, Galilee and Judea, And offering things like the forgiveness of sins. And offering things like repentance. And even having meals with people who were thought unreconcilable to God. And all of these things are a direct challenge to the temple at that time. And so when Luke is writing Acts, he's he's saying that the early church came into conflict with the temple. Because the temple was passing away. And because the church had the claim that Jesus was the new temple. That all the things that the temple had used to offer us, those were to be found in Jesus. And the reason why they knew that is because of this idea that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, If you're like me, I I used to think that Jesus Christ, you know, Christ was uh, like his last name. That it was like Mary and Joseph Christ had their firstborn son, Named Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know what his middle name was. We never, uh, maybe it's the, you know, his middle name's the, but Christ is not a, a last name. It's not a, it's, it's a title that it's, it's similar to, and it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. God's anointed one. And during the exile, there were these hopes and these prophecies of not only God coming back to reign and, and dwell among his people again, but that God would raise up, a Messiah, an anointed one, a king. And that that king would drive out the enemies of of Israel. And that ultimately that king would restore and cleanse the temple. That all throughout, uh, Solomon was the king who built the temple. And then throughout the history of the kings, you have examples of kings who are good, like Josiah and Hezekiah. And and one of the ways that that we see that they're righteous is because they reform and restore the temple. And Jesus had a moment where he cleansed the temple. And so what, what the early church is saying is that Jesus is the Messiah and that through him we have everything that the temple used to offer. And so if you were gonna be the Messiah, you had to drive out the enemies of God and res- to restore Israel, the kingdom of God, and you had to restore the temple, the presence and the dwelling place of God. The one thing you could not do if you were Messiah if you wanted to be, if, if, if you were like, you know, in high school and they had the, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you were to say, I want to be the Messiah, the one thing that they would say, okay, here's what you can't do if, you're, if you want to be the Messiah. You cannot get crucified. Like, that is the one, that is one thing that you cannot let happen. Because, and that's for two reasons. For one, crucifixion to Rome Uh, was something that they only used against, basically, revolutionaries. People who would revolt against Rome, and that happened time and time again. In this passage, uh, Gamaliel references two of many revolts. And really, what they are is would-be Messiah movements. People who kind of rose up, like, hey, I'm the Messiah, let's do this. Let's drive out the Romans. And every time that happened, Rome would come in very quickly and shut the whole thing down, and they would do it by crucifying the leader. Because what it meant to crucify them was to say, you thought you could revolt against us. You thought you could start a revolution. You thought you could defeat us. But watch what we are about to do to you. We are about to manhandle you. We are, we are going to keep you alive as long as we want. We are in complete control. It was a way of subjugating the whole population. It was a way to exert dominance over someone. And if you're going to be Messiah and you're going to drive out the enemies. Of God, of God and Israel, you cannot be crucified by them. You cannot be controlled and handled by them. And the other reason why you can't be crucified is because to a Jew and, and to an Israelite, crucifixion was the most shameful. Was one of the most shameful ways you could possibly die. Uh, in fact, they in this verse they reference it in Deuteronomy twenty-one. Um, Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three. It talks about that. It, cursed is a man who dies hanging from a tree. That that anyone who died hanging from a tree was cursed. They were were not, uh, that God wanted nothing to do with that person. So if you're going to be God's anointed one, God's chosen one, you cannot be cursed by him. You cannot be, uh, you cannot die in a way like that, that that is obviously so, um, God wanted nothing to do with it. And so, when, when people were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and he got crucified, that movement ended for a little bit. But then there was this crazy thing that happened. And all of a sudden, the church springs up out of nowhere. And they're claiming that Jesus had risen again and that he was the Messiah. And at the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father by, on his throne and then in Acts 2, he pours out his spirit. And the idea of pouring out his spirit at Pentecost is the restoration of the temple. That, that Jesus, being the new temple and being the, the place where we can go for forgiveness of sins, and being the place where we know that God reigns, that when Jesus, when they poured, he poured out his spirit on the church, we also knew that God again dwelled with his people. That that. God had, had, uh, was faithful to all the promises he had made and all the promises that, that Israel and the people of God had hoped for that were found as a yes in Christ, as Paul says later. And that when Jesus is on his throne, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, um, this is not a sign of Jesus going away and having nothing to do with here, with this place this is, it is a symbol and a sign that Jesus is running things now. Jesus reigns over everything. That God had restored his kingdom in him. And that also God was present again with his people, the church. That now instead of dwelling in a building that we have to, we have to uh, purify ourselves to get into. That God has purified us through the sacrifice of Christ. And that his spirit and his presence now dwells with us. And the message of Acts after the ascension, after the Pentecost, has been that Jesus is the Messiah, that he went to the depths of shame and the depths of a curse, that he died in the most shameful way possible for you and I. He died in the most shameful way imaginable. And that even at that lowest of low, God had vindicated him. And raised him from the dead. That Jesus was the Messiah. Because God had raised him. From the dead. And that in him. We have life. And that because of his resurrection. We can know that God will vindicate us too. And we will take part in a future resurrection. From the dead. And that we can know. And, and as the, the apostles. The, will, the reason why they were willing to suffer. And the reason why they were willing to rejoice at being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, is because they knew that God, that with all of the dishonor and shame that Christ had suffered in his crucifixion, that God had vindicated him and raised him up, and that he would do the same for us, that in our suffering, in our pain, in our brokenness, God does not leave us there. And that one day God... Uh, and, and Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, will come back and make all things new and that 's the message that the early church had, and that 's the message that they proclaimed and that 's the message they were willing to suffer and as we'll, and in the ch- next chapter after acts five in six and seven, we see Stephen is the first martyr of the church, and it 's the message that they, that the church had been willing to Suffer and die for throughout church history. And that during and in the middle of Stephen's martyrdom, it says that he looks up and he says, Behold, the heavens are open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen is saying, despite what all of this looks like, despite the fact that I'm about to die, I know that God is in control and that Jesus reigns and that God is faithful to his promises. So in the middle of our suffering and in the midst of the questions of where is God uh, in in our situations, in our brokenness, I I hope that we are reminded and encouraged by the, the testimony of the early church that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, they knew that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father and he reigned and that his spirit had been poured out on us and so he's with us. He's not a king who, who is not willing to suffer. He's not a king who asks us to suffer and, and wants no part in it. He's a king who suffered the ultimate dishonor and shame on our behalf. And he's not a king who, who uh, sends us out to suffer and, and sends us at a distance. He's not like a politician who sends an 18-year-old off to war. He's a king who, who calls us to suffer and is present with us in it. And that, uh, that's the message so far in Acts as we've seen that there is no need for this temple anymore because now finally, after all this time, God dwells with us. So in the midst of whatever you're going through, in the midst of whatever you bring into this room, um, and the midst of going forward, uh, because we will suffer in this life. Sometimes we will suffer blatant persecution uh, like, like the apostles here, and sometimes we just suffer because this world is broken and there is suffering. But I just want you to be reminded that Jesus is on his throne and he reigns and that he's with us and he dwells with us again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, again that these are not just good stories that they are they're fact. They're true that you reign and you dwell among us and you are in your temple and you're on your throne and that even when it looks like no one uh, is in control of things even when it looks like you are, uh, you are far from this world and this world looks so broken and hopeless God we can know that Jesus reigns and that he will come again and there will be a day when he makes all things new and when heaven and earth uh, when heaven comes to earth and all of the old former things are passing away. And God, we pray for that day. Uh, and God, we look back on the day when you rose from the dead and ultimately vindicated your son over death. And we know in that we can have life. You I pray. Amen.